0: Knock Stars, Knock On People. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I'm feeling refreshed, rejuvenated, uh, and pleasantly energetic right now. Just got back from a trip to British Columbia, one of my favorite destinations outside of my own yard, which I get to enjoy with my family. Uh, But BC is just an awesome place, great wilderness, And whether you like bear hunting or dislike bear hunting, um, well, sorry, doesn't matter because I enjoy hunting and, uh, love going up to my friends at Lobo Peak Guides and Outfitters and had an awesome trip up there way up at the start of the Rockies, really enjoyed it. Um, it's a year after I was down there, obviously with using my mouth tab last year for my grizzly and all that stuff. But, um... No, it was an awesome hunt. Posted some pics on social media if you want to check those out. So, you know, I feel awesome. Love it up there. Mountain air, uh, getting a smell like a campfire when I come home. Unzip my bow case and open it up and it smells like pine that I've been burning in my wood burning stove for nine days up in the wilderness and just absolutely love it. So... I was really wanting to get um, this second set of podcast questions from the previous one put out. And I was actually set up to record these, but I ended up having something come up last minute. So I had to hold off on these questions and I saved them. I've got about half a page here of questions that I'm going to bomb through and then um, I'm going to get into a whole new series of stuff. So. Really, the few things that I want to talk about, I guess, just on a personal level here, um, several things. Really, I've been having a lot of a lot of discussions lately on the subject of broadheads, and you know, it, I think broadheads is this endless conversation. Because there's just so many variables to broadheads, fixed blades versus mechanicals, um, and flight characteristics. I mean, you just really don't know how heads will perform until you actually try them. And I think, for me, the way I look at it, there's a lot of disc- there's a lot of things up in the air about fixed blade heads versus mechanical broadheads. And if you're a target archer listening and you're already not liking the direction of this podcast for hunting, you just got to wait a while because I'll get into target stuff later. But for right now with broadheads, I just really believe that you have to look at the overall size of your target and almost consider that target and break it down like you would a pie graph. And, you know, the main thing that a mechanical has as a negative in some situations is penetration. Um, Mainly if it hits directly on a major bone-like arm. And honestly, when I look at the entire anatomy of something and factor in that one bone versus all the other area on the animal that you can shoot where you won't have to have those obstructions I just really think that the mechanical in my opinion has a larger area where it has more uses I would much rather make a poor shot with a mechanical than I would with a fixed blade. You know, I like a larger cut. I really, I'm right now I'm shooting rage hypodermics. I try a lot of different heads, but, um, I, I'm shooting rage hypodermics. I shot, I actually shot both these bears with rage hypodermic plus peas. Um, but I also did some testing with several different other broadheads and, you know, I just think that there's pros and cons to even if you're just testing mechanicals or if you're just testing fixed blades. For example, I shot three different mechanicals. Um, just because I don't like to talk neg- negatively about certain brands, I'm not going to mention the other brands. What I will say is one of them was a three-blade mechanical design, a three-blade head, which I, re- I actually really liked. Um, I like the product and I know they perform well. Um, and then the other one was another two blade design, which the blades function pretty much the opposite of a, like what a rage would. And I just feel like if you make, I intentionally made some poor shots on some shoulders that I had in camp and, um, the rage Had a full cut going in versus the other ones that did not have a full cut. And if you don't pass through, you're stuck with having a minimal cut at the entry point, and then you also have an arrow that's stuck in there, and then there's just going to be obviously minimal blood trailing. So that gets a little bit for me that's hard to swallow, even though the broadhead may have fully penetrated and it's done its job. um, I still like to have a big cut, whether it's going in or going out. Um, And I also like to have a setup to where, you know, I'm able to, I'm able to shoot and still possibly, you know, shoulders, shoulder blades, ribs, I want to make sure, if I'm shooting mechanical, that neither of them are a problem. The main thing that would ever be a problem is mainly that arm bone, but in all fairness if that arm bone is two inches wide and five inches long, I'm probably a lot less likely to hit that than I am anywhere else. Not to mention, you really have to look at what you can shoot the best groups with. Now, if you're shooting a one- or two-inch group with a fixed-blade broadhead versus a five-inch group with a mechanical, or I'm sorry, if you're shooting a one- or two-inch group with a expandable head and then you're shooting a group that's maybe double that with a fixed-blade head, which is likely because if you're factoring wind or if you're shooting at a higher speed, Um, having a fixed blade head does tend to have more of those variables affect it. Um, so if in most situations, my grouping size is twice the size with the fixed blade head, then I just argue if I'm less likely to hit the one thing that I don't want to hit, if I'm being more accurate with what I'm choosing. Now, there's certainly times where a fixed blade head is really, really practical, um, especially on really large game. Um, A two blade is always going to penetrate more than a three blade, so to speak. Um, But I just really, I've really started leaning towards a mechanical head in the states that I can use them. And I can honestly say, and for those of you who are watching, the knock on TV show from the hunting side of things, uh, the reality is I don't really try to hide my bad shots. Um, if I have a if I have a less than preferred shot on on the show, I don't try to edit and cut around it. I let you see, you know, if I make a marginal shot angle or whatever it is, I let you see it. But I also know that when I've not made a perfect shot. I've certainly um, been able to recover my animals when I'm shooting that bigger cutting diameter. It just has saved me a lot. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, the first question I've got here kind of ties into this. And that's why I talked about that subject first, because this next subject is kind of on that same thing and I didn't write down this person's name but the question is um, I'm shooting axis arrows and playing with standard inserts so 16 grain hit inserts and I'm also playing with 50 grain brass inserts as I'm prepping for my first elk hunt my arrow weight with a hundred grain head um, on each is 414 versus 446 Um, I was planning to shoot a heavier insert with a hundred grain head, but would it be better for me to shoot the standard insert with a 125 grain head? Um, And he kind of goes on to talk about the slight difference that there would be in FOC. However, what sticks out to me is the question, and this is something that I've asked myself and something that I've you know, really tested myself, is are you better to shoot a standard insert with 125 grain point, so to speak, versus a a lighter broadhead with a heavier insert? My response to this is I have found from my testing that I actually prefer the smaller broadheads because a hundred grain broadhead, fixed blade or mechanical, for the most part, is gonna be smaller and more compact overall. You know, a hundred grain thunderhead versus a hundred twenty-five grain thunderhead is gonna—you know—there is a difference. A lot of times, the ferrule is gonna be longer. You're gonna have a longer blade. Um, so, from just the math point of view. It's going to be the same. However, I've just personally found that I can get the lighter, more compact broadheads to fly better than I can a longer ferrelled, longer bladed broadheads, you know, especially at the speeds that we shoot nowadays. So by choosing a smaller, more compact head, like for example, I would much rather shoot Hundred grain Muzzy Trocar versus an original hundred and twenty five grain Muzzy. Um, I just feel like it's more compact. It's going to have less noise. It's going to have less drag. And again, overall, your math is going to be about the same. So that's my personal preference. Even when I was shooting, um, even when I was shooting mechanical heads, unless there's a head that specifically has a really cool feature at the 125 grain range. I personally have just found I would rather have that heavier insert with the lighter head to give you the overall total number, which is equivalent to a standard insert versus a 125. That's been my results for the most part. Uh, The next question here says in the podcast you talked about replacing stock strings on your compounds but i have a recurve and was wondering if the standard holds true for replacing strings on your recurves as well i know i can't modify and tune my recurve to the extent of a compound but i'd be happy to get a different string if it means a more repeatable or quieter shot if so what do you recommend so Regardless of the bow that you shoot, you're certainly right. There's things that won't be affected that would be affected on a compound. Like, for example, on a compound, you can really change your holding weight. You can change um, your valley. You can obviously change the preload or tune of your bow. But what you can do for both is actually start affecting your speed, you're going to start affecting the longevity, you can start affecting the sound with different types of string materials. So with a recurve, this is almost one of the topics that I could have 15 different recurve guests on and we're probably going to get 15 different responses because with a recurve you're obviously holding with your with your fingers so some recurve shooters really like the string to be smaller some would like it to be bigger um, if it's coming to actual like quietness or lack of vibration or reducing vibration i can tell you that certain materials are going to be better for that for example like a Dyneema-type material or a Fast Flight-type material, if you can still find it. Um, Any type of like an 8125, an 8190, uh, these are BCY products, something like that are going to be really, really useful for having better longevity. They're not going to dry out near as fast as something that would be like a 452, 452X, pretty much anything that would have Vectran. If it's got Vectran, it's going to have a louder twang. It's going to have a more coarse frequency when it's fired, Um, but it's also not going to have near the stretch. When you have a recurve, what I found when I shot my Olympic style recurve was, I was able to take a string that had more longevity, one that kind of had less vibrations through the limbs. Um, I actually shot a 8190, and I also think I shot like a Dynaflight 97 uh, material, simply because each time I took my recurve apart and then rebuilt it i would twist my string in order to get my brace height exactly how i want it it's not like your bow sits there with the tension of the string or you know with the tension of the bow on the string day in and day out. You unstring a recurve, then you restring a recurve. So you're constantly twisting that back to spec. So if you do have a string material that naturally stretches more over time, which any type of a Dyneema or a Spectra or Fast Flight type blend is going to continually stretch more over time versus a Vectran material like a 452 or 452X or um, trying to think of what some of the other brands' names are. I've shot BCY products for so long; it's really the only ones that I know. But um, if you want quietness, go with something that's a softer material, like a Dyneema. Uh, personally, like an eighty-one ninety, something like that. Uh, The bigger you make the string or the more strands you add to the string, obviously the more longevity it's going to have, the less vibration it's going to have, and the quieter that bow is going to be as well. Um, So you can certainly change them. It also gives you the ability to choose a center serving uh, diameter. Like, for example, say you decide to shoot uh, 22 strands, of Dyneema, when you go to serve that string, or if you're having one custom made, I guess, you would just specify what knock you're using. And obviously they would adjust the diameter of that string so that it fits your knock perfectly. But then at that point, obviously you're going to have to see if that string sits in your fingers the way that you want it to. You know, for some Olympic style archers, they really... Feel how that strings in their fingers and that importance to that and their consistency of actually grabbing that arrow and how that string feels in their fingers at full draw, that's much more important to them versus the sound or the frequency or the vibration that's going through the bow. But if you're a hunter and you just have a traditional bow or a recurve that you want to go out and play with, Um, having a higher string number, uh, higher string count is going to really help you in reducing your sound and also having a string that is going to be or is going to have more longevity overall. Um, Next question here is, and for most of these... I had my faithful sidekick, Antoine, copy and paste a lot of these questions, so I don't have names, Um, but this question is, shooting in the wind, question mark, hold off or bubble, which do I prefer? So when it comes to shooting in the wind, you do really have two options. You either have to hold off of the spot uh, according to how much that arrow is going to drift, or you do have the ability to use your bubble as an indicator and you actually can't your bow or lean your bow. Um, Leaning your top limb into the wind, actually, whichever way you lean your top end, let's just backtrack, whichever way you lean your top limb, your arrow is going to follow that. Um, So If you have your sight perfectly leveled for second and third axis and you have a slight right to left wind, then what you're going to need to do is tip your top limb slightly towards the direction the wind is coming from. So you're actually going to tip your right limb into the wind so when you do that, your bubble is obviously going to move. And really good archers normally prefer to use their bubbles when it comes to variable winds. Otherwise, what happens is you start to do what's called chasing your site. And for those people who just reach out to their site and add a few clicks so that they hit in the center... What happens is if the wind is five miles an hour, one shot, and then it's 10 miles an hour, you're constantly clicking and unclicking and clicking and unclicking to compensate. And what will happen is you're never truly at zero for what your left to right setting in it is. And by the end of the event, you'll find that you could have twisted your sight a full turn one way or a full turn the next way. And you're really never sure you're constantly trying to compensate because your bow really isn't dialed in for dead center anymore. So it's really hard to to get a feel for how much you're actually drifting from center, which is important if you're standing there and you're shooting six arrows per end and this end, the wind might be eight miles an hour and maybe by the sixth arrow of last end you were sighted in perfectly. But if if you've waited that few minutes for them to pull your arrows and the wind starts blowing again, and now you're shooting and the wind is only five miles an hour, well now you're gonna miss the gold because you had sighted in for ten. So it's really good as a especially as a field archer or a outdoor target archer to start to understand how the flags on the targets can give you an indicator of how much the wind is actually blowing. And this is something that comes from a tremendous amount of practice. So if I'm standing at 70 meters and I've got a small ribbon on the top of my target, and it's barely lifting off, and it's just a slight lift, you know, maybe just coming off the target and fluttering, I know that this really is a variable wind, probably five miles an hour or less at seventy meters from my particular setups. I would certainly have some drift um other people like for example, uh you know I remember back when I shot against like Rio Wild, his arrow was so much shorter than mine he had a lot less drift just because he had less surface area to be affected by the wind. So how much I had to compensate was much different than people that had shorter draw lengths because my draw length's t- uh, 31 inches. So my arrow for my target setups was always 29 and a half inches. It definitely would have, I wouldn't shoot a 10 if I aimed dead center, you know, with anywhere from a five to 10 mile an hour wind. So At that, if the flag was barely off, I knew that I just needed about a quarter of a bubble with my top limb into the wind until my bubble moved about a quarter of the bubble on the left side of that line. So I would shoot and I could judge if it wasn't enough, then the next one I might give it half a bubble. I personally, once I was bubbling three quarters of a bubble and it still wasn't able to land in there, at that point, I started to think, okay, well, if I'm shooting and my arrow just hit a full eight to the left, then at that point, I actually start aiming on the opposite side of that target at that same spot. So, I mean, if you've got a, a wind to where it's blowing pretty hard and you're drifting four to five rings then you may have to aim four to five rings off. And this is something that I think is really important because people that, people that don't address their target panic and they aren't really able to hold their bow and aim and look at a certain spot as they go through a shot sequence and then still execute the same shot, those people are going to really struggle when it comes to not aiming at a particular spot. Like a lot of those people develop the habit of freezing beneath the target. And then they have to force the shot and lift their bow up. Now, when it comes to having to aim to the right or to the left of that bullseye and focus on just like maybe the 8-9 line or a very certain spot between rings, you know, if you're struggling with target panic, there's a very solid chance that you're not going to be able to aim off the target. And a lot of those people end up having to just crank their sights, you know, a full turn or two in order to just sit there and aim center. And like I said, if the, very, if the wind is variable, you're just constantly clicking and unclicking and you just end up chasing your sight the entire round. You know, one part of being completely uh, target panic free and having the ability to know that you can execute the exact same shot regardless is in situations like this where you can actually draw back, aim off a target or on a target and execute the exact same shot. I mean, I can tell you right now, if you can't do that, then obviously you've got an issue that you definitely need to address Uh, next question here is tips to help consistency grips arm positions head neck balance so it's kind of a multi-part question Um, I can tell you that my shot routine that I go through and the shot routine that I teach students is really focused on five basic steps that build a foundation that are critical to any archer. Uh, The first being your stance. If your stance isn't correct, then obviously your balance isn't going to be correct by any means. Um, So you really want to stand with what I call a neutral stance, which is your stance about the width of your shoulders. I really like my feet to be directly under my hips. And from there with your posture, your hips need to be directly under your shoulders. Um, once your stance is correct, then the next thing is going to be your grip. I literally look from my feet directly to my grip. And, I look at my hand position, I make sure that my hand position is the exact same as it was the previous shot. I always slide my hand up against the top of my riser and then I lean down on the grip so that I have even pressure from the top of my palm all the way down to the thumb bone where it connects my thumb pretty much directly through where my wrist and my arm bone go back. I don't cross my grip over the lifeline of my hand. I have it directly on that part where your thumb comes down and connects with your wrist. And where your wrist goes all the way back through your arm bone. And that literally that, that line and that connection goes all the way straight through to your shoulder socket. So I look at my stance. I look at my grip. From there, I have my arm more or less straight, slightly bent or relaxed, but more or less straight. And I raise my bow arm to the target and I raise it directly in line with the target. I point my sight at the target with my bow arm extended in a natural, almost a T, perfect T formation. And from there, I draw my release hand back to my face. I don't, Push and pull, I don't try to lift the bow above the target and then push and pull as I come down. All that stuff starts to dramatically affect your front shoulder position, which is going to be critical, especially if you're learning to shoot back tension the correct way. Or if you're shooting a tension activated release like the Carter Evolution, which I did load um, on the Knock on Archer YouTube website or the YouTube channel, I did load the Carter Evolution uh, instructional. So uh, I've got some pretty rocking hair and I look really young, but a lot of the fundamentals of this stuff is on there. The other thing is once you come to full draw, um, you need to really, when it comes to head or neck position, one thing that I learned as a recurve shooter And this was probably the most valuable thing I learned when I shot recurve. Um, And thanks to Juan Carlos uh, from World Archery, uh, this really fixed a lot of problems that I was actually having with the compound that I really never knew about because I didn't realize how your head position affected so many different things. But what he taught me... And this was with the recurve. And the reason I learned it was because sometimes I pulled back and I felt like I was going through my motion way too much in order to get my clicker to click. Then other times I would pull back and my clicker would be clicking before I was even coming to my anchor. And what I found out was when my head position was going to the string, I was coming to my anchor and I still had to pull my my recurve bow you know almost an inch or an inch and a half until that clicker went past the tip of my arrow and allowed me to fire whereas when my head was straight and I pulled back to directly to my anchor with my head in a perfectly vertical position I was on the edge of my clicker almost instantaneously so what he had me do as a visualization was he actually held um, a hair right in the center of my head and he held it straight up to the ceiling. And he said, I want you to imagine this hair being tied directly straight above you to the ceiling. And if you take your head towards the target or towards your bow, you're going to pull that hair out. So he said, what I want you to do is I want to hold this hair. You can turn your head left. You can turn your head, right. You can turn it any way you want, but, As long as you're not taking your head forward or back, that hair is still going to be in your head. So I imagine that when I lift my bow to come to full draw, I stand in a perfectly T formation and I just pivot my head straight towards the target turn it towards the target, and then once it's towards the target, I make sure that I have my head in that exact same vertical position as I draw my release hand back towards my face. If I take my head towards that, then what happens is when you come to your anchor point, you're going to find that the string is going to be further past your face. And a lot of times, this also has people start creeping the whole? The longer they're holding their shot. So if you take pictures of yourself or video of yourself, and sometimes you draw back and the string is right at the tip of your nose where it should be, and then also in the next shot, it's a quarter inch or a half inch on the side of your nose, that's an indicator that you're going to the target or towards your bow with your head, As you draw back, just imagine that holding that one little thread or that one little hair straight up vertically and then simply turning your head to the left towards the target if you're a right-handed shooter and keeping your head in that position. Those are the major things. Those aren't all of my shot routine, but I can tell you that your stance, keeping your feet under your hips, your hips directly under your shoulders Raising that bow towards the target, putting the pin on the target, and then using your drawing arm to pull that release back towards full draw or back towards your face without changing the position of your front or your torso is absolutely critical. A lot of people within the first three inches of their draw cycle, they do what's called hitching, and that's pushing your hips towards the target or slightly cocking your shoulder back to where your front shoulder comes behind your front foot or comes behind your front hip. And as soon as you do that, you actually raise the humerus of the main humerus bone in your socket. You automatically push that humerus towards the top part of your shoulder socket and you've already created a shoulder that is going to start to creep it's going to start to collapse and it's going to start to fall apart at full draw you're going to start to lose the tension that you have on your bow you're going to start to collapse in the shot you're going to creep forward on your cam and your whole shot breaks down. If you're shooting a recurve, if you're shooting a Carter Evolution, that little hitch within the first two inches of your draw length can completely change how that shot feels. Easy shots happen really easy, and it's because a lot of times your alignment and your posture is perfect without you really having to think about it. Um, Let's see, we'll move into the next question here. Uh, how to use a Hooter shooter properly for tuning arrows. So uh, this question is specific to a shooting machine. Uh, a Hooter shooter is made by Spot Hog. I have one. It's a shooting machine to where you can fix it down to the ground. You can put your bow in there. You can draw it back using a crank where you you actually have a, a, a fixture to where you can mount your actual release aid to this. You draw it back, and it pulls your bow to full draw. And then from there, you can actually micro-adjust it uh, up or down or left or right as you're looking through your peep. And you can get your sight set perfectly in the center of the target. And then you actually have like a syringe-style plunger that you push this syringe with your thumb And it's actually got a cable that's fed down to the trigger on your release to where it fires your release without you ever having to touch the bow. So it's pretty much like a robot that's shooting your your bow for you. And a shooting machine can be used really for so many things. I mean, one, it's going to tell you right away how accurate your bow is whether you're operating it or not because obviously if you're using a robot to shoot your bow and you still can't hold a good group then there's obviously problems to identify and that can be a number of things depending on your setup. You know I know that uh, most bows if you've got a shooting machine and you're shooting in perfectly calm and perfectly flat conditions you can just sit there and shoot a dozen arrows inside of an X-ring without a problem if your bow is proper. Now, the shooting machine is going to tell you so many different things if you're not getting those results. And honestly, it's really difficult without there being specifics um, as to what that'll be. Uh, I know that it can really easily identify something like, um, contact that you might have where your arrow's contacting um, your arrow rest improperly or your cables improperly. Um, it can also help you identify, for example, if, the, if your arrow spine is not matched perfectly for your bow setup, then what's going to happen is you're just going to have this horizontal spread of arrows across the target and even though you're using the shooting machine it's still going to have this horizontal line that goes across and from there if you're having that then what you'll need to do is actually work on a system that's called uh, the hill method which I um, kind of invented or wrote about several years ago Uh, that hill method is a method that allows you to adjust the poundage of your bow plus or minus three to four pounds which in a lot of cases is is equivalent to one spine size and it'll quickly show you how a stiffer or a weaker arrow will give you a completely different grouping result and actually um i don't know if i'm allowed to print this or not but well I just I wrote an article for Bow International Magazine um, for this past edition. It's called "The Hill Remastered," and for those of you who get Bow International Magazine, I actually just brought I just got my copy here from England, and I brought it down, um, and it had Jesse Broadwater on the cover. Uh, so many obvious things to me when I look at Jesse of Wise so good and he's able to shoot the way that he does he's got this is like a close-up of him at full draw pretty much on his face and there's just so many things that are perfect you look at where his arrows are fletched he has zero contact on his face the string is barely at the tip of his nose barely touching the corner of his mouth full clearance of his knock full clearance of his shaft full clearance of the veins his hand position with his release is set at a perfect angle to where he's not torquing his string, he's not twisting his loop so much. The loop is at the right length where even though it does have a slight turn to it, it isn't starting to turn the string. There's so many things that are perfect about it. However, in that magazine, I have an article called The Hill Remastered. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to post this on my Facebook page. And I'll actually have uh, I'll have my buddy load it onto the Knock on TV, uh, com website and the dudleyarchery.info website. And um, actually, I think I got dudleyarchery.com now. But um, in the articles tab, click on the articles tab. I'll have them load it right to the top. It'll be called Hill Remastered. Otherwise, I'll also post it on all three of my Facebook pages until Bo international calls me and tells me to take it down. Um, however, if Bo international is listening, any of you guys, uh, Nicola or James or whoever else, uh, just gave you good advertising. So you should let everyone see that article for free. Um, let's see here. I've got time for one more question here before, Um, I'm going to wrap up this podcast and I've got a schedule set here to do a podcast with a guest for the next one. Um, So let's see here. Uh, Don't know if you have ever covered target site, 3D target sites versus indoor setups, what power lenses or what I should look for. So I'm not sure if I talked about that either. Um, I get this question quite often. You know, when it comes to sights and target archery, um, there's such a variance. The size of your scope, the power of your lens, whether to shoot a pin, whether to shoot a dot, whether to shoot a ring. There's so many different things. A lot of this is preference. I can tell you that... here I'm going to give you the things that I look for um, or what I shoot. When I shot field... I never really liked more than about a 4 power lens. Um, It was actually a .55 diopter on a 29mm Sherlock scope. Um, I personally always liked the slightly smaller scopes because it allowed me to shoot a peep sight that was the same size as that scope if I shot a bigger scope, like a lot of the 3d people have kind of gone to shooting the bigger scope so that they can see the entire animal and start to learn how to silhouette that animal in darker, uh, darker situations. They can silhouette it. Um, I've just found that when I'm trying to shoot a smaller peep with a bigger housing, I just kind of start to lose center and I personally am not as accurate with it. So I really like to choose a power lens that allows me to have a clear sight picture, but also allows me to use a peep sight that allows me to gather enough light to where my, my uh, image is clear. Like, for example, when I'm shooting field or when I'm shooting outdoor target, the targets are normally really well lit, the colors are bright. I'm allowed, you know, I can shoot. Well, for outdoors I always shoot about a 4 power lens. For indoor shooting, I shoot a 6 power lens because the targets are at one distance all the time. I'm going to see the same sight picture all the time. The targets are normally pretty well lit. Um if the shooting light on the line is not that good, there has been times where I've actually changed my peep. To a slightly bigger size, which I'm talking the difference between either the micro peep or a small peep, um, I have changed my peep in order to be able to just to get enough light through that peep to where my image itself is illuminated enough. I don't like to have a really dark target. I would rather have a target that's not perfectly in focus rather than have one that's really dark. Because what will happen is when it's really dark, you'll find yourself really starting to squint or open your eye or completely close one eye. And I've found for me personally, if I'm shooting with both eyes open or if I'm shooting with one eye half closed or one eye fully closed, I can get slightly different left or rights depending on the situation. So I really choose to shoot a peep that allows me to have a bright enough sight picture, even if it's slightly out of focus. The smaller your peep will be, the more it will clarify what you're looking at through a higher power scope. Um, When I moved to outdoor, again, even though I shot the six power indoor, when I moved to outdoor, I shot a four power lens for field or for target. There was a few times when I was only shooting a double 70 round, like a 720 round at 70 meters. Um, There was times where I shot a six power lens simply because Um, And this is another important factor. My power lenses changed according to the conditions I was in. If I knew that I was going somewhere and I looked at the weather report and I saw that the weather was showing high winds or a lot of winds or rain, I would probably choose to shoot a lower power lens simply because it was going to be I'm going to see less movement and I'm also going to be able to not have to worry about that sight picture being so big that like say water on the lens or a wind gust is going to completely like blow your mind through your sight scope, through your sight image. Uh, For 3D, I really shot even a lower power lens. Uh, For most of my 3D career, I shot a 3 power with um, a fiber optic pin that was... Mounted on the scope itself so that I could actually take the lens off if I needed to make a shot where it was just too dark in a situation or where there you know maybe where I was shooting a black target like a black boar or a turkey or something to where it was in a very tight dark place and I just couldn't quite see what I needed to see. I could take that lens out and still be able to use my pin now when I shot field and target. I actually didn't shoot a fiber pin. I shot a small little dot, a small, very small black dot that was the size of the 10 ring um, on my lens. And then I would take a needle and I would dip it in white model paint and I would drop that white dot in the center of the black dot. And what that did was if I ever had lighting that was behind me, the white would illuminate and i could see it perfectly whereas if you didn't have the white the black actually starts to wash out within the image that you're looking at now if i had four lighting where the lighting was in front of me i would really notice the black dot and the white dot would fade away but the white dot or the black dot would be very prominent i wouldn't see the white because obviously the lighting's hitting me in the face but if i ever had direct lighting from behind that white dot really illuminated and gave me a great focal point. So that's kind of what I did for 3d. Um, I always shot a, uh, a, a 19, fiber. I bounced around between red and green. It would change at times depending on the fiber that I was using. Um, I actually really loved having the fiber pins that were drilled directly through the center of the lenses. Um, If all conditions were perfect, that was by far my favorite because it was just a very nice illuminated dot in the center of the lens. Uh, However, if I ever had to remove my lens, like I talked about, because it was just too dark on the target, I was kind of screwed. So... Uh, that's really where I'm at. we got about a 50 minute podcast here. I want to say before we close, I want to say thank you to everybody who bought the little knock on releases. I've got so many messages, probably a dang near message from every one of you out there who, who was lucky enough to get them. They sold out in seven hours and everybody's, you know, sending awesome pictures of great results with their groups i'm super super pumped about that thank you guys um and i guess the other thing is i am trying to get more made it's not going to happen fast and i still want to have uh i still want to come up with a name for this thing so i've got to go back to that post where i asked all of you to have a creative name i want to pick several of you that had the best names i'm going to send you some free hats and uh, sure appreciate everybody out there. Thanks so much uh, for everything. And please make sure that if you're following any of the social media stuff uh, or any of the YouTube stuff, make sure you just click share or click like. It makes a big difference. You know, I need to know what subjects you guys like and what subjects aren't something that you like. So that's really a great indicator for me. Appreciate everyone and uh, get out there and shoot a bow. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com